Well, good morning. My name is Kyle. If we haven't met yet, I am the lead pastor here at Generations Church. And we want to get to know you and your story. So whether you're joining us online, we, we hope that you click the button and, and share a little bit more about your story. Uh, we want to steward those stories well, I had an interesting story this week. Uh, it actually happened clear back in 2009, where this Israeli woman uh, named Anat surprised her mother by like cleaning her house and, and showed up to the apartment, uh, basically did this deep clean. And one of the things she noticed is, is the mattress was, was pretty worn out. And so she's like, hey, my mother's getting older. Like, I, I'm going to get her uh, a, a new mattress. And then she decided to dispose the old one. But what Anat did not know or realize, however, was that her mother had been storing all of her life savings in that mattress. And by the point she realized that all of her mother's life savings were in that mattress. And up to that point, she had, she had saved a million dollars, which is one heck of a chunk of change. When they realized what had happened, they quickly rushed to the dump and were starting to dig through all the trash. The mattress had by that point in time been buried in a landfill and could not be found. Uh, Nat's mother had been sleeping on riches all her life, yet could not experience any of the benefits. Many of us as followers of Jesus have been sleeping on the Christian life not realizing our wealth of riches in Jesus. They are stored up, waiting for us. We, we've been maybe hoarding them in some regards, saving them for a rainy day, but never fully realizing them here and now. And we spend most of our life squandering these riches, angry, complaining about life, not realizing how much we have and what we're sleeping on. And this is what this series benefits package is all about, is we have an inheritance, we have riches, we have benefits available to us now for those of you who are followers of Jesus and can live out of those benefits, out, out of those riches and, and, and live in life, yet we sleep on them, not fully realizing them. And I think the real rub in our day, in some ways is that because we simply sleep on these riches, not fully accessing them, people sometimes walk away from the faith because there's been this culture that's created of where we simply play church or we talk about Jesus rather than live in the reality as if he is our Lord and Savior and live out the benefits of having God here with us and now through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so what happens is people get tired of playing games, of doing religion, of trying more, and then stuff doesn't equate. Well, why doesn't my life turn out how I think it should be tur turn out? And what happens is they walk away. But what's interesting is most cases, what they're walking away from it's not actual, actual followership of Jesus. They're walking away from something else entirely. And the reality is, is that this is prophesied time and time again in the Bible. Where, where, where people 
who have said yes to following Jesus essentially get caught up in other things that seem spiritual-like but are not actually spiritual transformative. And in every age, there's sometimes like this falling away, but God always preserves a remnant. A group of people who in their day and age actively follow Jesus in such a way that they are changed and transformed and actually are a picture of God's rule and reign in the earth. And so sometimes the sifting takes place. Now, I'm going to step on my own toes here uh, for a second. As people who have gathered here to, to focus on Jesus, to be reminded of his rule, his reign, to, to take and, and really pursue maturity, to, to go deeper than just beyond the, the status quo, you should demand from me and our other leaders to speak about faith, to live about a faith where the Bible is taught, the gospel is proclaimed, where values that are over here are, are truly lived, and you're challenged to live in love as if the spiritual blessings given to us are available to us in Christ, are truly infinite, available, and to be lived out now. Amen. That we have what we need in Christ. And it's not limited to a set of programs or performances on Sunday. Nor is it found in the world's religious systems where everything is relative and a person's happiness is paramount. You, you should be challenged to live in love. And it says, so it means we may say some things. We, we may call you to some things that, that where it feels like it ruffles some feathers. But yet, it's not to a set of, of, of programs or a, or a stand up or a sit down or, or a recite or something. But, but a type of life that is truly shaped and transformed around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because ultimately, there is nothing out in the world that is better than what Christ has given you. And if that is the truth, then frankly, like, we don't have time to play games. We don't have time to mess around. And, and in fact, the people in your life, if they feel like you are simply playing a game, they will opt out and say, I'm not interested in that. However, if you live in the reality of the spiritual blessings that Christ has given to you, they might be interested in that. And I would bet that that is a more compelling life in our day and age than anything else. I might be up here by myself on this one. But, but you know... The, the reality is, is, is the enemy is a good marketer. He knows what's needed to convince you that the bootleg version of faith is better than Jesus. And some of you have exchanged the real thing for a counterfeit. And in some ways, this is the pressure that's been pushed on the Hebrews. Is exchange this bootleg version of faith where it's this idea of, of maybe if, if I had a series of, of tactics or if I could just get it right in a, in a you know, equation type thing. You know, if I could just rub the lamp, you know, and get three wishes, then everything will be good. And, and, and what happens is, is when you start to follow Jesus... It's not just a change that's generated out within the world, but really the change always starts internally. And, and, and it starts to rub up in your own heart and soul, and you have to deal with it. Is, is following Jesus, and specifically, is Jesus 
bringing a level of transformation and change in my own soul? And is that ultimately worth it? Or will I settle for another priest that seems to be better than Jesus? And let me say this, don't fall into the marketing and cut yourself loose from something that is ultimately more secure than anything in this world. Because the bootleg version of faith that's so often sold to us or appealing to us can't actually sustain us. It can't actually hold. And just to recap where we're at in this, this chapter 7 of Hebrews is, is this author is talking about this, this priest king Melchizedek. And, and priests, just while we may not always understand kind of in our Western world why, why they seem so like odd. It, priests, again, are really in the West, are our pop stars, our actors, our athletes and writers who take our weaknesses and identifies these weaknesses and offer them as gods in and of themselves. And this confuses us and the need for change in our own hearts. And what it says is the world's acceptance of our brokenness isn't ultimately what heals our hearts. Our change and the reason we find that these modern day priests are so alluring is because we do desire acceptance. We do desire love. But these things are fickle. They can't ultimately give us the true love that we desire. And the true acceptance is only found in attachment to Christ. And as we are then attached to Christ, what happens is we realize that we are first and foremost accepted in him. Therefore, we will demonstrate a change. Because we don't revel then in our brokenness. Our brokenness is ultimately and only healed in Christ. And in our search for acceptance, sometimes when we glory in our brokenness, it actually hinders our healing. And we begin to drift unanchored, hoping where we land is secure enough to hold us when the pressures of life pile up. The healing we need only comes from a secure person whom we can latch on to. Someone who can truly stand the gap when we need it the most. Who sees us and our weaknesses and is unafraid to engage with them. Who is unafraid to spend time necessary to truly heal. To, to spend time in all of our idiosyncrasies and, and all of our quirks, to maybe put it a little nicely, to, to not run away and say, do not glory maybe in those, but allow those to be fully and rightly expressed through me in a world that needs healing and hope. And this is what Jesus does as our perfect priest. See, Jesus is our better hope because we have a secure, eternal connection through him. And here in chapter 7 of Hebrews, the author in this smaller section offers two arguments for this. He begins to, to unpack the weakness of the Levitical priesthood. And then second, the better nature of Christ as our hope. And again, the, this kind of technical aspect of this Levitical priesthood, for many of us, we're not, we're not seeking um, to go back maybe to, to Judaism or, or this priesthood, but we're all looking for someone to kind of mediate right. 
in some ways, the transcendent into our imminent. I mean, I mean, sometimes that's why we crave control or acceptance or approval is because we desire to feel like something supernatural meets us in our moment of need in the everyday life. And so we're looking for something to mediate that. And, and so we, we search this. And for these believers, they were thinking that the Levitical priesthood, going back to this Jewish way of life, would do just that. And we do much the same, where we look for something to bring the transcendent into the imminent, to represent God to us so that we can simply feel better. But this Levitical priesthood, which these people were considering going back to, wasn't sufficient for them compared to Jesus. This is why the author says in verse 11, if then perfection came through the Levitical priesthood for under it, the people received the law, what further need would there be for another priest to appear said to be in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron? It's kind of this rhetorical question. Like we wouldn't need this other priest, this better priest, if the priesthood itself, if there was something else actually adequate. Melchizedek wasn't, was grounds for this proof in this logical train of thought. And the author wants them to think through this. Melchizedek was this priest king of the Most High God. The same God who had called Abram from his homeland and made a promise to bless all nations through him and his children. And even though Abram and Sarai at this time didn't have a kid. But Melchizedek, this priest king of Salem, wasn't from Levi's line. Now, why does this matter? The priesthood, this individual actually predated the Levitical priesthood. If you start to think chronologically, Levi and Aaron, later on, came from Abraham. Wait, Melchizedek is talking to Abraham. So we're talking hundreds of years in this span. So it means there is something different. There's someone different that ultimately has to represent God to man and stand the gap between man and God. See, generations later, God gave Moses the law which established a priesthood. And in order to be a priest, you had to be from the tribe of Levi, like Moses and Aaron. Your family connections and heritage mattered. This subsection of Abraham's family would serve as the mediator between God and humanity. And there has to be a law in place for that covenant then also to be mediated. There's a standard in place for them to operate and worship. There's a standard, there's this law, and then there's this person to mediate it. And all these other priests had to have this traceable lineage, both before and after. But what's interesting is this character of Melchizedek, he doesn't. Here's a king with no beginning and no end to his reign. So Melchizedek is a type of individual who exists forever. And this is crucial because according to the law, genealogy needed to be proved to be this priest. And so Mel was appointed without genealogy or carrying on the family business. So his priesthood could not be taken away. See, it's pretty significant that Jesus, as this type of priest like Melchizedek, means that his priesthood, his mediation between you and God, can never be taken away. 
It was given to him appointed. It's not contingent on being in the right place at the right time or being from a certain family because that's what's available in terms of benefits to you. Because Jesus' priesthood can never be taken away, it means the blessings afforded to you through Jesus as an enumerator cannot be taken away. It means no matter what family you're from, no what background or, or walk of life or whether your parents were a Christian or not or whether your kids are even a Christian or not or whether your great aunt read her Bible every day or your great uncle like was a Wiccan or, or something like that. It has no, like a, the other spiritual aspects to adjacent has no bearing on the blessings available to you in Christ. And because Jesus was appointed and that can never be taken away, that can then be passed on to you. And in fact, years later, King David penned Psalm 110 and in verse 4 saying that there will be a final priest who comes from this line of Melchizedek, not from this line of Levi, and re-emerges this title of priest-king, a person whose rule and mediator can never be taken away. This is why Jesus is the final priest. So anyone or anything that claims that you need them to represent God to you or you to God is a bootleg version of faith and will always be a counterfeit and isn't the real thing. See, the priesthood was the pointer, ultimately not the perfecter. The perfecter is the original, is the only, and is the final, and that being Jesus. See, if you, were, if you were leaving Washington State and heading north, you would eventually reach a sign saying, border crossing ahead as you approach the Canadian border. And likely, you wouldn't stop at that sign and take a picture. Yay, we made it to Canada. Border crossing ahead. No, you have to actually get into the next country to say that you were then in Canada. See, the Levitical priesthood was always supposed to serve as a sign in tandem with the law that says you have not arrived. You need something or someone to mediate God to you. This sign does not indicate your arrival, therefore keep going. There are things that we experience in this world that are good gifts from God that help us kind of be reminded of the transcendent and that there's something bigger out there. But our daily challenge is that we confuse signs with the destination. There are these big transcendent moments. I I think of a, a stadium at a concert or at a sporting event or just maybe even sitting on the back porch smoking a cigar just in a moment of tranquility. And maybe you feel small and insignificant, or maybe you feel like, man, I'm part of something bigger and better. And those moments can be signposts that say, yeah, this is good, but there's something better, and keep going. Maybe it's a vacation where you experience rest that you finally need. But what always happens is these moments lapse and ultimately never absolve the pain we cause. They never actually heal our heart. They give us a glimpse or a moment of something that we crave naturally. And they are a signpost. 
And God gives those through moments and experiences and also sometimes people. Someone who stands the gap for us and has our back when we need it. Or someone who shows up and, and serves or helps. And we go, man, I really needed that. But in those moments, it's a sign, not the destination, because we know the reality of life. Those moments fade, and those people will always fail. You know this relationally when you thought someone who's on your side uh, is, gets snarky with you and maybe doesn't say things in the right exact tone that you need to hear it in the moment that you needed to hear it. And you go, wait, I, I thought we were on the same team here. Like, why, why you got to say it like that? And sometimes we take those a little personal, but then we remember that even the best people in our lives who love us and care about us will only help us or remind us there is only one author and perfecter of our faith. There is only one who stands the gap. There is only one who is right every time, and that person is Jesus. See, we need a destination and a driver who indeed absolves us through a perfect life. And Jesus' priesthood accomplishes what the Levitical priesthood never could through an indestructible life. See, all those priests died, but it's Jesus that's alive. Amen. And he died and overcame death. And because of that, we have hope Amen. and we have a forever mediator. He is able to serve you as your priest, rescue you as your savior, love you as your Lord, because he conquered death itself. Amen. And the great news is that Jesus will outlast you. I find great freedom in that. He will outlast you. So if you have a burden for your kids, if you have a burden for your family members, even when you get it wrong, Jesus will get it right. And so trust that he can be the intermediary for them just as he has been for you. Lots of sin, Jesus has more grace. Lots of shame, Jesus has more righteousness. And this is why Jesus is our better hope. By being the guarantor of the covenant, securing our eternal connection. See, in tandem with the priesthood was the law. And the author begins to pull back these layers about the purpose of the law. See, the law given to Moses and to Israel, who was supposed to represent God to the world, to, to truly be that blessing, the law was never meant to secure a connection for us. It was never to stabilize that connection. Ultimately, the law was again another signpost that someone and something was ultimately going to have to secure that connection. Because see, Christ is the guarantee of this covenant. Christians can be assured that all the blessings, all the blessings of this new reality will be applied to them because Jesus stands the gap. We don't have to go to a place and offer sacrifices because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. We don't have to do a series of acts or control all the right things because Christ is sufficient. And God's covenant promise cannot fail because God's priest, Jesus Christ, cannot fail. 
this hope is better because the outcome has already been achieved. Quit sleeping on a bed of riches. You can draw near to God right now. He's not at a distance. He's not hidden behind a curtain. You don't have to search Google for him. He's available right now. You can draw near to him by simply saying, Lord, help me. I see you and I need you. And what happens is, it, is when we start to realize the benefits and the blessings that are already available to us, that actually gives us hope. And hope is a driving and sustaining force. Because you will only do difficult things long enough in the way in which they demand to be done if you have hope that there will be some end to the difficulty. That there's going to be a reward or an applause or that what you did was ultimately effective. But only we do this out of a response to what has already been done for us. That you, that you bargain with your present self now in exchange for something later. See, Jesus says, let me take care of that negotiation. Jesus being the guarantor of the covenant means that on behalf of both parties involved, the agreement stands as good. And I know this sounds like loan language, like contract language, and that's because it is in some way. The guarantor, being loan language, is saying if the loan is beyond what an individual can bear, the bank will ask for someone else who can guarantee that the loan will be repaid in full. Meaning, if you need money and you ask the bank to loan it to you, and you, they look at your income, they look at your story, and they say, yeah, I don't think this person will ever be able to pay us back. So they ask for someone else to co-sign or be the guarantor that says, if you default on that, I can count on this other person to pay back that loan. And that means that failure to make your payments puts your assets and your guarantees, guarantor's assets on the line. If you do not pay, they said they would pay. And maybe something bad happens to them and they ultimately can't pay, but, but they are going to be co-responsible. See, what is to be paid in full is total responsiveness to God, perfectly loving him and others at every moment. Amen. And instantly with the weight of that reality, we start to miss those payments. We don't do it perfectly. We feel the weight of that reality. Maybe we want to. We'd like to think that we could, but at some point, no matter how hard we try, we will imperfectly love and respond to God, and we will imperfectly love and respond to others with the same love he has afforded to us. And those payments, that bill coming due, will crush you without a guarantor like Jesus. Because ultimately, you don't have to pay. He paid it. He stands the gap. He didn't just say he guarantees a loan. And so this, this, this old covenant had a mediator, Moses, but no one to guarantee the people's side of the covenant. This relationship, this contract, this agreement that there would be blessing 
first initiated by God, and therefore they continually failed under it. But here's the reality under this new and better covenant. This has a cosigner to guarantee it on our behalf. This reality, this Jesus, stands the gap, and it depends on what he did, not what on, what we, on what we do. He is the surety, and we are not. He is the sure thing. And what's amazing is as God initiates this, he also is the one, again, who is the guarantee of it. When you can't live up to it, he says, I got you. When you say, I feel like I'm going to fail, I got you. When you're weak and your knees are about to buckle or lock tight, I got you. And the amazing thing is that begins us to freedom because then we don't look to repay anything. In some ways, we look to live it or pay it forward. Because we're not accepted by what we do, but by what Christ has done. See, and every now and then, I have an important meeting that, um, that I need to be able to answer questions pretty seamlessly. One of the most frustrating moments of this reality is when the Wi-Fi don't work. Is, is you're on an important Zoom call, maybe it's for fundraising or, or for meeting, and it's like, and it's like, and then it freezes and breaks, and then it's like, okay, I gotta pick. The person jumps in and is like, okay, hey, where, where's the, how's it going? Like, where were you? And you're like, where was I? And and it's like, it just doesn't work. And it's sometimes, frankly, it's it's pretty embarrassing. It's like when you're trying to have a really important conversation and it just doesn't work, and the signal cuts out. I remember this one time, I just my computer just kept going off. And, uh, you know, you eventually you do some troubleshooting and try to figure out what the issue and what was happening is, is it wasn't staying connected to the Wi-Fi. It felt like the Wi-Fi connection wasn't enough and had to search for another more sustainable connection. It was looking for some other connection. But the change I needed to make was instead of making my computer search, I needed to be plugged directly into the internet. I couldn't be relying on the Wi-Fi. I had to have that Ethernet cord where there is a direct line from the source to, to my computer. And the result, when you plug that Ethernet cable up, you have direct access to the internet. And there's no spotty connection. There's no more freezing. There's no more breaking or awkward facial expressions because someone's froze <laughs> on, the, on the camera. What's amazing is in Jesus Christ, we have a solid connection to God. Under the law, we did not have a solid connection with God. Whatever you think or you, you want to be your priest or your God right now, you'll never feel quite stable. It's like your Wi-Fi is always off, searching and moving. But through Jesus, we have a stable and secure connection. Jesus is our solid connection through his indestructible life. For he lived and he conquered death and he rose again. And since we cannot guarantee the loan for ourselves, nor the connection for ourselves and others, our responsibility then is to simply respond and live out of that strong connection, to see that strengthen, to live anchored to that, and point back to that reality, to be signposts, to live with a different set of securities. See, the idea is that your relationship with Jesus 
isn't actually contingent on your circumstances. It's easy to look around the world and say, yeah, I must deserve this for some reason. Or be arrogant and say, I don't deserve what I'm going through for another reason because I've done enough. And whether you heap blame on yourself, nor feel arrogant and, and put the blame somewhere else, what, we, what happens is, or I should say it this way, we're evaluating life by a messed up metric. In both of those cases, we're pointing at us to be the sole arbiter of life, of what is good and what is right and how we achieve those blessings. When we talk about covenant, it's not so much that we have to work to stay in it, but really it's a response to what Christ has already done. And what happens is we have to resist the temptation to justify ourselves, which gives us the ability to rest and the ability to work. Because since I'm responsible and I cannot do it all, sometimes we feel like then I just won't try or I won't change. And when we recognize that Jesus stands the gap and we are mature, we can actually pursue maturity. We can, we can see to strengthen that connection, allow that signal to come through. And we can also live with a deep humility because at some point you have to sleep and Jesus is eternal and he truly stands that gap. And so what I want to do as we close here, the band comes forward, is here in these moments when it's trying to think about how do I ensure I'm truly living that connection. I'm truly representing that to the world. I'm being that signpost. I'm being pointing to an ultimate high priest because knowing that we can't even mediate for others and we can't even mediate well for ourselves. Sometimes it's just simple phrases or reminders that reframes us so that we can respond in relationships, not out of fear or not with a level of guilt or even a lot of of shame that drives us forward but one of hope knowing that we are secure in Christ that our identity is truly secure and so what I want to do is I just want to pray this prayer for us and I've shared this prayer before and it's called the, the simple gospel prayer, and someone else wrote it. But I find this prayer helpful when I am struggling to stay in relationships, when I feel like my connection with God is spotty. And it's not some magical prayer that instantly knows that it is faith in Christ. It is what he has done that sustains and is sufficient for us. So this is not some, some magic word, but I, but I think it can, can help us reframe and reorient And so maybe you need to pray this prayer with me in your heart and in your own mind. And this prayer goes like this. It says, because I am in Christ, there is nothing I have done that can make you love me less and nothing I can do that would make you love me more. That you, Lord, are all I need for everlasting joy. 
And as you, as you have been to me, so I will be to others. And as I pray, I'll do so according to the compassion you've shown at the cross and the power you've demonstrated through the resurrection. See, the measure by which we live life is found in our eternal priest who never fails, who establishes that connection and steadies us in an unsteady world. And so let's just stand and sing.